Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Grammy Award-winning conductor who hails from the United States. Over a long and distinguished career, he has guest conducted all over the world and was music director of the Brooklyn Philharmonic for eight years and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra for 20 years. He starts as music director of the Fort Worth Symphony in 2022, whilst continuing to teach at the Aspen Music Festival, a post he's held since 2011. In a change from the norm, today's interview will start from the moment I pressed record and started chatting. I think it sets the tone for how the rest of the interview went, with us laughing and chuckling throughout, and it was definitely one of my personal favourite interviews so far. It gives me a very great pleasure to welcome Robert Spano. How do you pronounce your, I want the definitive version, are you Spano or Spano? Yes. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> and do you prefer to be called Robert or what would you, what, what do people, most, most people call you? Because most people call me Mike, so. Um... Uh-huh. I get Bob and okay. I'm Robert and equally good as Spano and Spano. Fine. Well, I may well drift between Robert and Bob and see how we good. get on. Right, That's here we good. go. I shall start. Robert, it's lovely to see you again after many years, because I remember playing for you fondly very much when you used to come to Birmingham. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Um, We have a lot to get through because I've done my homework, as the listeners know, and um, I want to go right back to the beginning. I know that your instruments listed are piano, flute and violin, but also that you composed. Musical family or did it come out of nowhere? How did music first enter your life? Oh, musical family, yeah. Yeah. Family business, right? <laughs> it was uh, um, my grandparents, uncles, uh, certainly my parents, and uh, it was just in the house, in the yeah. family. Yeah. Very natural thing to study music. But with some of the conductors who come from musical families, it was sort of expected of them to go into music. You know, it was the the family trade. Yeah. Did you have any pressure or or not, or did it just ha- happen naturally? Well, I, I'm told, I don't remember this because I, my childhood memories don't go past, I don't know, eight yeah, <laughs> or something yeah, like that backwards. Yeah. But I'm, I'm told that my older brother had started taking piano lessons at my parents' insistence right. when he was five. And because he wasn't enjoying it, they weren't about to push me into it. Mm. But I insisted that I get lessons for myself when I was six. Yeah. So there was a, there was certainly some uh, innate interest on my part as well, because I'm, I'm told that I, I was the one who said, no, no, I really want the lessons. I don't mm. care if he doesn't want them. <laughs> <laughs> and so you start on piano, but th- uh, how quickly did you, did the flute and the violin appear? Well, flute came maybe when I was eight or nine. Yeah. Uh, and my father was making flutes at the time mm. for uh, Gemeinhardt Flute Company. And uh, so I was handed a flute. Uh, you're going to play this now. Mm-hmm. And I do remember this very well, that after about a year of playing the flute, which I loved and continued to play until basically until I was in college, I wanted to play the violin yeah. very badly. And they, they were reluctant for me to take on another instrument. But uh, again, I was a stubborn child <laughs> and I insisted that I play the violin as well. So I started the violin a year later. Yeah. And... At any point, or at what point, because I'm sure at some point it happened, uh, and I'm assuming it's, it was on the flute, did you join youth orchestras or, or bands or local yeah, bands? Yeah, I think it was uh, seventh 
grade. So I'm trying to think how old I would have been at the time, but I, I went to the next to where I grew up in Elkhart, Indiana is South Bend, Indiana. And there was a youth orchestra in South Bend at that time that was not for high school students, but for junior high school students. So it was right. only the, the three years before high school, the kids that were in that. So for two years, I played the flute in that orchestra. And then my last year I played the violin. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, it's always where we normally you know, where, where we would meet our first conductors. Were you like me? I mean, I seem to remember thinking all the way back when I first joined a, a proper youth orchestra when I was 12 or 13, looking at this person at the front, and it was always, well, actually, no, it was a lie. The first person who conducted me was a woman, um, uh, dear uh, Angela Warner and, and uh, Helen of the senior strings at Medway, but usually it was a guy. You know, I was looking at them thinking, why are you doing that? What are you doing that for? I wasn't just blindly following. Were you like that as well? Yeah, and my first influential conductor was a woman as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because my violin teacher was the high school orchestra conductor. Right. And then she also ran the orchestra in the junior high school that I went to. And she was a very dynamic, uh, uh, charismatic person. And so we, there were a group of us who just, we would have, she was the Pied Piper. Yeah, kind of yeah. And she actually gave me my first conducting lesson later when I was 14. So she um, she had a big influence in that way. I'm assuming it was a conducting lesson before you conducted your own piece. I read this yeah. off, off Wikipedia, which can't, can't always be trusted, but it looks like it can in this case. So you conducted your own piece, uh, or what was the orchestra or the orchestration? Oh, it was a standard sort of double winds yeah. uh, brass orchestra. And because I had to conduct this piece and had no idea what I was gonna do, I went to her and said, can you, yeah teach me the basics. So she taught me the basic beat patterns. That's basically all I knew. <laughs> and so when you're 14, uh, it's easy not to be intimidated and afraid. At least that's my memory of it. So I was yeah. very excited to do this, had no idea that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and then, so what a great experience to have, you know, listening yeah. to this orchestra play my music while I'm standing there. And I vividly remember finishing a reading through the piece and saying, wow, thank you. That's so great. And the the conductor of that orchestra said to me, would, would you like to rehearse? I said, why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> it was great, yeah. When you, when you look back- when I got the bug. Ah, well, that was going to be my next question, which when you look back, was that the moment you got the bug and, and you just said yeah. it was? You know, I, I, I remember leading my, well, it wasn't my county, it was my local youth orchestra in the Medway Towns in Kent. The conductor said to me, I'd like to go and listen. You're leading the orchestra. Why don't you lead and conduct from the violin? And I think probably looking back, it was the Freischutz Overture. I conducted the whole thing from the from the first violinist chair, you know. But I think probably looking back, that was probably the first time. And then I conducted a piece of my own, very similar to you, but age eighteen. Um, and so that that was that moment for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, looking back, yeah. yeah. But then I did nothing about it until much later. Did you do something about it? Oh, not too much later. Maybe when I, when I was 17, I formed a string orchestra of my friends right. and I started taking lessons from a, well, I had gone to an, uh, we had all state orchestras in those days. I think they still exist. And I uh, went to be part of that. And the conductor of that was the associate conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony at that time. I was smoking because I was a bad high school student. And, <laughs> and you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> and he smoked. Right. 
Right. And so all the breaks, I could talk to him mm. Uh, mm. that we took in those rehearsals. And finally, after those few days of doing this all-state orchestra experience, I said to him, do you, do you teach conducting? And he said, no. And I said, do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> and and he said let me think about it but yeah. we stayed in touch and then i did i had a lesson with him maybe once a month yeah. for a year and he um he was so generous with his yeah. time i mean the lesson would be three or four hours and then we would go to an indianapolis symphony concert together and we would analyze what was going on with the conductor and with the orchestra it was it was just a wonderful foundation he gave me. We used Max Rudolph's book, right. A Grammar of Conducting, who he was later my teacher. And so mm -hmm. there was also something beautiful for me in my life that that uh, little circle got closed. Uh, but that that book for me was foundational in, in my training. And I, I still think that the principles in it are, he's right to call it the grammar of conducting in my mind. Yeah. I think it's on the shelf behind me somewhere. Um, well, like uh -huh. most of these books, I've bought Gustav Meyer's book, and you know, even you know, I'm now into well into a professional career. You still find these things very, very interesting. Who? What was the yeah. name of the first guy who used to give you those three or four hours? Paul Polivnik. Right. Yeah. Uh, what a wonderful it, education, especially then to go to a concert and. and oh uh, and yeah, watch, that yeah. was great. That was yeah. just great. And so when I was taking those lessons with him, I formed an, a string orchestra of my friends and we'd yeah. give concerts at a church or the library and that kind of thing. And well, you, you mentioned uh, Max Rudolph being, uh, when you went to Curtis, in between you went to the, now I don't know whether I'm gonna pronounce this right, the Oberlin Conservatory. Um, and Oberlin, yeah. yeah, and studied with Robert Baustian or Baustian or how does how Baustian. Um, yeah. With the, these three main teachers, did they all sort of sing off the same hymn sheet? Were they very much yes. into the technique of things, less about score study, or was it, you know, half and half? Oh, it was, in every case, it was a lot about score study. Right. So it just, despite Rudolph's reputation for the mechanics of that book, mm. I mean, certainly he was coming out, he was a good friend of Zell's, and so there was a real... Uh, kind of gigantic intellect that yeah. worked there that, that leaked into understanding of scores and and uh, expanding one's cultural awareness beyond the score and uh, yeah. in-depth kind of uh, interest in the composer and the soil from which that music came. So that was all wonderful. And especially in working with Baustian at Oberlin, he was probably the most influential teacher on me because I worked with him most time wise and he was going to retire when I started studying with him so he made a point of and he left before I finished a degree in that program with him so he made a point of, of spending a lot of time with me I was seeing him maybe three times a week and lessons were often uh oh we're going to do dictation today and he would sit down and start playing things that I was meant to write down right. often quite complex and three, four voices, yeah. and uh, or uh, a lesson would be, uh, oh, here's a Mahler symphony, play. <laughs> <laughs> so that was terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and um, to, to, to study with him, I had put myself through quite rigorous score playing uh, yeah. exercises at the keyboard and solfege and all that. Yeah. So uh, I was ready for him to be uh, 
uh, more demanding in those directions. And then, or he'd say, okay, play Debussy, meaning improvise, and I want it to sound like Debussy, or, or play Mozart, or play Bach. Mm. And th that was wonderful. So it was a very kind of old fashioned, uh, in the best sense of the word, musical foundational grounding mm. that he gave me that I'll, I'll always treasure. I, I, I was particularly lucky to get to work with him right before he retired. He, he, was, a, he was a great teacher of conducting uh, throughout his career at Oberlin, which, where he taught for many, many years. Yeah. But he was also one of the founding conductors of the Santa Fe Opera. Oh, okay. When Crosby, John Crosby, created the Santa Fe Opera, Boston was one of the first uh, conductors he brought along. And um, I was lucky to have seen him uh, a few years before he died. I was able to visit him in Santa Fe. And I, was, I felt very lucky to see him before he died. He was already starting to fade. He was in his 90s and starting to fade uh, a bit mm. uh, mentally. And so yeah. I felt so lucky to get to see him before. You know, he was still there two out of the 10 minutes of <laughs> each 10-minute increment. Yeah. And that yeah. was great to, yeah. to connect with him at that point. So it sounds, you know, if I take it to, I mean, these are two names I've mentioned often on the podcast. If you, if you, you were a Moosin student, everything was based on technique. Um, uh, whereas if you were a Hans Swarovski student in Vienna, you know, all of those guys have said that they basically got 10 minutes of technique, period. Um, in your particular case, you can also add in a third school, which is the German Kapellmeister system, where everything is based on the piano. So you, it sounds like you were very much more of a sort of Swarovski Kapell, slash Kapellmeister um, <laughs> sort, of, sort of schooling um, <laughs> than, say, you know, the, the many conductors I've, I've met, I've talked to on here who've been taught by Moosin. So where do you think you got your technique from or did it just evolve over the many years of study that you had oh that's interesting um i i guess what happened was i got that foundational schooling you know yeah don't do that fix yeah. that don't, <laughs> yeah don't go outside that box you know yes. i got those and also what are the levers here and the newtonian mm. approach to to how to manage the stick and uh so I had a pretty rigorous grounding at that mechanical level, but then I was Seiji Ozawa's assistant. Yes, yeah. So all that went flying right out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was like a force of nature. Where did that technique come from? You know, yeah. in a sense, right, he was a Saito student. But then on the other hand, he took those particular principles and flew with them, but having worked with Karyon and Bernstein. And so his technique was this, fascinating amalgamation of influences and and certainly idiosyncratic to him mm. but while I was working with him of course I mean how did we all learn we steal yes so, so yeah. while I was working with him I was trying all kinds of things on for size for myself yeah. and I think eventually those the things that I was able to steal got incorporated into me in a way that I don't think I resemble him in any particular way but the the things that got digested, uh, I, I think, are are there too. So it's a, it's that myriad. And then everyone else I've observed, and I remember working at the BSO. One of the great privileges was to witness the guest conductors who came through. So to have the opportunity to uh, 
especially Heitink for me was a kind of revered model. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you can do that, then you're a conductor. Yeah. So that those influences were just as big. So I, I think that in addition to that uh, schooling was, uh, well, Max used to say, the best way to learn to, to conduct is to conduct. Yes. Yeah. The next best way is to observe. And the next best way is to have a teacher. And I, I feel like I got all three. I noticed with my students at Aspen, when they're observing a rehearsal, I get so annoyed when their heads are in the score. Mm. And, and can't you do that at home? <laughs> 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 because I remember when I was Sage's assistant, if I was observing a rehearsal, I was observing the rehearsal. I mm. wanted to see what was going on. What was the interaction uh, uh, musically, psychologically, socially, you know, uh, technically, all those, what the, the incredible complexity of the relationship between the conductor and orchestra to kind of be able to sit there and, and try and observe and, and, and record that uh, just, there's so much subtle information there, you can't get it all. How can you possibly be looking at the score? Well, you're trying to take in all of that. Um, I, I agree so much. I mean, you know, I, my background is, you know, 22 years of playing. As I said to you before I pressed record, I remember playing for you uh, very well. But, you know, I would assist Sacre Ormo and assist Andrus Nelsons when they did the concert performances of opera. You know, I wanted to see what they were doing. I wanted to see how they were working with the singers. I wanted to see the, all of this. And then going back to what you said about people rubbing off on you, you know, there are times now I conduct and think, well, that was a rattle beat. Uh, and then other times I conduct and go, well, that was a brilliant Oromo upbeat, you know. And, <laughs> and But I, I don't mean it. It's just they, they rub off on you. They were the people, I, they were, those were the two conductors I played for the most. Uh, and, you know, even little things, you know, I did seven years under Andrus Nelson's before I retired. There are little times I conduct things and think, uh, oh, that's very Andrusy. Don't do that, you know. Um, <laughs> and to rub off on you, isn't it? It just does. It's, it's you know, if, you, if you're friends with somebody for a long time, you share vocabulary in your sentences. You share exactly. jokes. You share com common, you know, word use. And it's exactly the same if you're assisting. So, you know, it's, it's not a surprise at all. Right. We jumped over you... Uh, after finishing your studies, you becoming director of all orchestral activities at Bowling Green State University and then going back to Oberlin to lead the opera program. So I'm imagining during this, well, I'm guessing five year period before you go to Boston with Azawa, you're conducting every day, pretty much. You've got students there on tap. Uh, it must have been just, as you've just said, Max Rudolph said, the best way of learning to conduct is to conduct. That must have been a great five years of just learning rep. Um, yeah, every oh, day. it was so fantastic for me. And maybe the most important part was the operas, yeah. because at, that started at Bowling Green, despite the fact that uh, I was specifically hired at Oberlin to do the operas. A big part of my job at Bowling Green was the opera productions as well. And uh, those were the first operas I was conducting. So it was, you know, it was a gift. And the, the other part of that gift that was spectacular was the director I was doing them with. Right. Who was actually quite a giant. Uh, his name was Roy Lazarus, and he had had quite a career as a singer, uh, mm. both in opera and, at, at, and on Broadway. So, uh, and, and that's another Santa Fe connection because Stravinsky was one of his fans. You know, that's oh. not bad. No, that's not bad at all. <laughs> as a singer, if you get that. 
and uh, he was the first one to sing standing on the corner watching all the girls go by and whatever that, what was that? The most happy fellow, I think, on Broadway. And so a wide ranging career, but he'd also done television. He'd been on the Ed Sullivan show. He'd been on I Love Lucy. I mean, he'd, he'd been around and he ran, I think the only professional company he ran was Kansas City, but he had also taught uh, opera programs at Juilliard, IU, and Oberlin hmm. as well. And for any number of personal reasons, late in life, he had retired, but came out of retirement to teach at Bowling Green. Oh. So here's, here's this school, uh, state school in Ohio that happens to have a very good college of music, but it's not, it's not a school that one would think of as uh, um, in the way that you know, you put the great music schools in America on a pedestal, that's not one of them. Mm. But in fact, wonderful things have come out of it. I met Jennifer Higdon there, who later yeah. in life, you know, I have such a close relationship with her as a composer. She was in my conducting seminar as a flute right. major at Bowling Green University. And meanwhile, I'm getting to do all my first operas with this real theater mensch. Yeah. I mean, he knew the ins and outs of, of theater mm. in a way that I'm uh, eternally grateful to him uh, just working with him and he had the most so here I am 20 what five years old and he's uh, 65 years old and he had the most wonderful way of not treating me like his student yeah and yeah. yet man really treating me like a colleague and we became very close friends and still managing to teach me everything I needed to learn <laughs> which was a hell of a lot <laughs> and uh, it was just that was that was a gift that from, you know, how, do, how does anyone get that lucky? Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing my first Figaro, my first Giovanni, my first Suor Angelica, my, you know, it was just, it was fantastic. Yeah. And uh, he had, he just had us, his theatrical sensibilities, it was a sixth sense. I'll never forget, we were doing auditions for some show and a soprano came in. And when she finished singing, he said, so how long, when are you expecting? Wow. Said, well, I'm not pregnant. And he said, no, you are. <laughs> you wow. may not have figured it out, but I'm telling you, you are. You need to go see a doctor. <laughs> he was right. Wow. wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how anyone has that kind of magical sixth sense, but he had it. Yeah. So he could sniff out what was going on stage uh, in the most wonderful ways, the subtlety of, of a dramatic situation or yeah. the the efficacy of someone's acting. So he really sensitized me to the singing actor, to the yes. singing actress that, that when, when that combination happens in a performer, it's so electrifying and yeah. he knew how to teach it. Well, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. What a wonderful story. Um, it reminds me of a, a friend of ours. We knew that we were going to have our second child, but nobody else did. And she apparently knew by just by the way my wife was walking that she thought that we were pregnant for the second time. Oh my god! We both poo pooed it, but she's absolutely adamant. She said, oh, <laughs> I knew all along. <laughs> okay, is uncanny. It is very weird, but oh, wow! I'd love to know how how Roy knew that. I mean, it must have been something in, in that he'd heard in her voice, or how how she was supporting or not supporting the sound. But yeah, yeah, fascinating, amazing. So. 
He also had a wicked sense of humor. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and that kept us, we laughed yeah. our way through those four years pretty healthily too. Yeah. Oh, it, well, it helps. And actually people you share humor with, I think are often your favorite teachers because, you know, that if they can't get at you in a, in a non-humorous way, they'll teach you in a humorous way. And, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that works. So wh when 1990 came around and you went to become assistant of Boston Symphony Orchestra with Seiji Ozawa, did you stop at Oberlin and Bowling Green was, uh, and just become an assistant or did they run concurrently at all? I stayed on, I became, I think, officially half-time as a professor at Oberlin. Oh. In, in Boston, there were two of us. You yeah. might know Grant Llewellyn. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Grant and I were were partners in crime uh, in Boston for three years. And they, it was a wonderful setup because that way we could spell each other. Mm. So uh, I would go back to Oberlin and do uh, two opera productions a season. Mm. And that was pretty much all I was doing at Oberlin at that time. But I did that the whole time I was in Boston. And Grant would be covering while I was in Oberlin and then Grant would go off and do other things when I went back to Boston and sometimes we were there together and that wasn't maybe the best thing for the institution because <laughs> we, we, we were able, we were, um, we had a lot of fun together. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, so I continued and actually I'm still on faculty at Oberlin. Mm. I've never, I've never given up my tenure. Oh wow. Uh, uh, I don't go back very often. I'll be there next year. I was there two years ago. Uh, every year I'm not there. I'm, a, I'm on leave of absence. Um, they're not paying me, so I don't feel guilty. Yeah. And then when I show up, you know, I do what I can. I'm still very uh, attached, emotionally attached to the school and uh, really love going back and working with the students. So whenever I can arrange it, I do it. And I haven't left my professorship there ever. Uh, I had already left when I went to Oberlin after four years at Bowling Green, I left Bowling Green entirely. So yeah. that one year at Oberlin before I went to Boston, I was a full-time professor there. Well, we're gonna to come to teaching later because I wanna pick your brains and, and your name has come up as being somebody who's been a teacher of some of the previous people on the podcast. But about three years after you finish at Boston, you become music director of the Brooklyn Philharmonic uh, and then principal guest. But then the big thing uh, in 01, you become music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. And I want to pick your brains about being a, a US uh, music director and all that that entails. It's come up before on the podcast, but you know, you spent 20 years there. Uh, I'm assuming you're coming to an end or, or just about to come to an end. Uh, I just conducted, you know, this COVID season. Yeah. We didn't have live concerts, but we were one of the lucky ones. We did do, uh, we worked almost every week as we would have with reduced numbers and distancing and plastic and God knows yeah. no audience, no. but recording these things and releasing them online. Digital. Yeah. Digital, yeah, yeah. digital, yeah. digital season. Yeah. And so I just did my life, but we, I end up calling them concerts because we of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. programs, yeah. but uh, the last week I did, we were able, things had changed enough. We were able to do a Mahler four with a full orchestra. Wow. And uh, that was just after this year, I mean, to have 75 people on the stage was without yeah. plastic interfering and maybe a little excess distance, but it was almost normal. And it just felt absolutely wonderful. And that was my final week as music director of the ASO. So I am officially not music director <laughs> of the ASO anymore. <laughs> well, I'm gonna ask, ask the question in a minute, but I'm gonna dwell briefly on the fact that last week I conducted the CBSO 
uh, in one of their that we're now allowing a quarter or a third audiences back in. Oh, uh, great! Uh, but when I did a um, Malcolm Arnold's Fifth Symphony with the full orchestra, almost a full string section, and oh. to ha and to finish and get applause, uh, you just forget how deep. Were you in moved. heaven? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. In heaven. <laughs> That's yeah. what happens to me when it's normal again. Yeah, yeah. It's, you just forget, or we have forgotten, or you know how deeply moving it is, and especially the end of that symphony, which is it basically rips your heart out of your chest. You know, you just stand there and think, "Oh, applause! It's wonderful." So, yeah, wonderful for that you. Familiar sound. Yeah, yeah. That beautiful sound. <laughs> My question to do with Atlanta is, and I've written it down because you know it's. I think I read somewhere that, you know, you've got ticket sales to go up, but, but obviously there's the philanthropy, there's meeting donators, there's meeting all of that, doing all of that sort of stuff. The question I've written down is, what does it take to make a job a success as a music director in the United States? Somebody's done it for 20 years and it's been a success at Atlanta. What do you think uh, the conductor's role and thought process has to be to make that a success? Oh boy, that's a tough. I mean, your list was great. The things you were saying that to set up your question yes. are, are all part of that mix for sure. I mean, yeah. that the things you were mentioning were that's all spot on in my mind. Yeah. But I, I guess I kind of in my own mind distill everything down to I think it all comes from just a recognition and an acceptance that one's role is as the face of the orchestra in the community. It, yeah. You have yeah. to become an ambassador mm. for that orchestra in that place. And, and yes. it, it has to do with a, a political, uh, I don't mean in terms of politics per se, but political in its most uh, fundamental sense, the, the polis, that, that you participate in the life of the city. And I think that's true anywhere, anytime, up to a point. But in America, because of the way we're funded, because of the way we interface mm. with where we live, it's all the more uh, incumbent yes. on any music director to take that political or social or civic role very seriously. And you get used to seeing your face on the bus. You know, <laughs> if, if things are going well, you will see your face on the, painted on the side of the bus as it goes by. Yeah. And, you, and you have to get used to knowing that if you're out and about, uh, you should and will be recognized and yeah. you need to assume that role. Uh, and it's, it, it, that leads to everything else, I think. I think That's all true. the other things can fit under that assumption of responsibility. Mm. And that's, uh, that's the fun, as you were mentioning, that's the fundraising, that's the, the spreading the word and getting ticket sales. And for me, it was, I, I participated in every aspect of the institution, uh, at least in a advisory or attentive way, and hopefully not getting in people's way, but mm. helping them in what they were trying to do. We had a wonderful way of working when I came to the ASO, which was very, uh, I don't know if people are still using it. At the time, people referred to institutions running in a siloed way right. so that the, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. We were the opposite of that. And we yeah. had these, these wonderful meetings. We used to call them the war room meetings. And it was inspired <laughs> by, <laughs> it was inspired by that place in the uh, Dr. Strangelove, the Kubrick movie yes. where, 
<laughs> Peter Sellers as the president says, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we did fight and in, in a most wonderful way. You know, we, we, and I found it to be so valuable because when you start putting on the table the, the multiple agendas that have to be satisfied for the institution to succeed, you realize that that's a, a focus for creativity, not a wet blanket on creativity, quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So when, when you're taking your marketing director seriously and, and he has the audacity to say to you, well, I can't sell Brahms, then <laughs> you, you have to take him seriously and you have to figure out, well, how are we going to sell Brahms? Because yeah. you have to, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, who are we? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and so it's, uh, but that, that effort to satisfy multiple agendas I found so satisfying in that interface with every other, with the development director, education director, marketing director. Though that to me was part of the great excitement about running this orchestra. Yeah. And um, not every orchestra function, very few orchestras function with so much interactivity between its departments or certainly with its music director. And it is, it is common for a, a music director to create a season and then the marketing director to try and figure out how to sell it. I found that because of the way we were working, by the time we knew what our plans were, everybody knew why we were doing it, how we were going to do it, how we were going to get there. So there was a fundamentally shared common purpose uh, when mm. we came to executing our plans. And that was powerful. Mm. And I, I think that we did something very right in that way as an institution. It sounds like you did. I mean, I'm sitting here nodding away thinking, well, I, you know, I'd want to be involved in meetings like that. And um, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to put a sort of parallel track and think about how it's done in the UK about the fact that, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but obviously they get cent central government funding to a larger or lesser degree. Some cases none, in some cases much more than others, but which means that there is less uh, need for the conductor to be involved in ticketing mm. and PR. Uh, and so it's sort of, it's, I'm a, just anecdotally know that with some orchestras, it's encouraged that the music director gets involved. In others, it's encouraged that they don't. And, right. and, and if you take that to the face on the bus, you know, there are some cities, I would, I, I'm going to say Liverpool, where I know that, um, you know, that Petrenko has been on the side of, the, of a bus. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen the music director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and that included when it was Simon Rattle, who was possibly oh. the most famous conductor in the UK, Europe uh, at the time. I don't remember seeing him on the side of a bus. And I'm wondering whether if they had been on the side of the bus, people have got, would have gone, well, who's that? I'm going to find out who it is and what are they doing on the side of a bus? Oh, there's a concert all there you know and that sort of chain of events yeah, um, and, and so there are parts of what you know a lot of what you said I'd love to happen over here in the UK and I know that if you know I ever got the chance to uh, to be involved with a, U a US orchestra you know sign me on I'm ready to come to all sorts of meetings and and what and be part of that corporate city civic feeling um, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. in Birmingham we have it because you know we're we're the only orchestra in the city really, and same in Liverpool. You know we have that corporate sense of things, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's I, I it sounds like the perfect way to run things really. Um, are you looking forward to doing it again in Fort Worth? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I have I have already been having wonderful meetings with not only staff there but with the 
I mean, it's going to take me a while to get started. I'm really not there until fall of 22. So in the yeah. meantime, I'm trying to get as much information and get as much a handle on what's going on institutionally as I can. I just finished up having meetings of eight to 10 at a time of all the players of the orchestra, just to hear from them what's going on, what's important, what do we need, what's valuable, what isn't, what needs to be gotten rid of and so on. And that's, I did that when I came to Atlanta as well. And that's proven very valuable already in, in Fort Worth. Apps brilliant. Um, I yeah, so wish that had happened when I was a player. Um, though I'd have been frightened to death sitting in a room with seven other musicians or Simon Rattle. I'd have kind of I'd have crapped myself and probably never said a word. But anyway, you know that was that was a twenty-two-year-old me. Now you know. Well, I'm not as intimidating as Simon. <laughs> At this point, I asked Bob Spano about his teaching role at Aspen, if he has a particular approach to teaching, and what he sees his role as being at that particular point of a conductor's career. We also discussed the two different types of conducting technique he usually sees, and how he decides on which conductors get chosen for Aspen. His search for talent leads him to tell another funny anecdote about Roy Lazarus. If you want to hear that 10-minute discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. For as little as £5 a month, you get access to this mini-episode, as well as all the previous other mini-episodes. You'll also get a monthly bulletin podcast from me about my career, as well as advanced news about this podcast. You also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays, and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to this supporters club of a mic on the podium very soon. Now, back to my chat with Robert Spano. I've got one other question before we do the 10 questions, Robert, which is every conductor's answered this, um, and it's really one for me and for the conducting geeks and the students. When you come to learn a new score... Do you have a process? Do you still use a piano? I know you're still composing, so maybe you're using your inner ear. And when you've, when in the process of learning it, are you a marker-upper? Are you somebody who scribbles in? Are you a blue, red, and black? Or you do you even use highlighter pens? Or are you one of these geniuses, I think, who write little or nothing into their score? What's your process and what goes on the paper? Well, I used to be a genius. Right? Yeah. And I'd lost that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were doing, uh, Oliver Nusson was one of my closest friends. Lovely man, and, lovely uh, man, yeah. You know, it's just so Sadly. hard to know that he's, I can't believe he's not in the world. It just mm. doesn't register as the truth to me yet. No. Uh, but Ollie and Reinbert DeLiu and I were doing Gruppen in Tanglewood. And uh, that was in and of itself just. I bet, yeah. Oh, what a. And with those two, I mean, we were just, that was exhilarating to work. Mm. We had to rehearse together, just the three of us. I don't know how many hours we spent together. Usually, but it was, it was fun rehearsing the three of us because it yeah. usually involved wine and <laughs> metronome arguments. Right, right, <laughs> so that yeah. might be 72.5 on your metronome. <laughs> but on mine, I'll tell you, it's a damn different thing. <laughs> but uh, it was so exhilarating. And what made me think of it is... Uh, we decided Ollie was the best conductor right. because he had six colors. Ah, yes. And Reinbert had red and blue. Yeah. And at that time, I only had pencil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've seen one of Ollie's scores when 
Oh my God! Uh, when he, yeah, they were. Uh, it was beautifully marked up. It was the miraculous Mandarin. Um, I think we just did the suite, and he was using a miniature score as well, which just oh, yeah. blew my mind. You know, how can you? <laughs> well, I suppose it means you have to learn it. But I, I actually quietly flicked through his score, and it was a, a a thing of beauty. As somebody who loves marking up scores, I mean, it really was a thing of beauty. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so well, yeah. Somehow, somehow, after, I mean, Max was very, uh, <clears throat> he poo pooed markings, overly marking scores. So that right. was in my training at that time. But uh, then working with Seiji, mm. so there was that experience with Reinbert and, and, and Ollie and seeing how they marked and why and what it served for them. And then I was seeing Ozawa's scores because he marked extensively. I mean, he right. used. All kinds of stuff. Not, nothing like it, it was the exact opposite of, of Nussen's markings, which were so fastidious and clean. I mean, you could learn the score from his markings alone, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. These were big scrawls and you know, colors. It was like uh, a coloring book in there. <laughs> but and I asked Seiji once to because people thought he had a photographic memory, and I just wasn't sure. So I finally asked him. After I'd worked with him long enough, I wasn't too intimidated to ask. And he said, oh, no, I do not. And then I realized, oh, yeah, he never knows the rehearsal numbers. Mm. You know, he doesn't know what page he's in. It's not like Mazel, yeah, yeah. where, you know, he, he knows everything from what's on the page. Yeah. So he read, and he said, I study. He said, I get up at five every morning and I study. Mm. And, and so his memorization was a process. And, uh, and But then seeing that how he was using pencil and then... When I left the BSO, I was itinerant completely. I had one year where I didn't have a residence. I lived in hotels. And that was that was a tough three years, but it was wonderful. I mean, mm. I was traveling everywhere I was conducting, but I had to learn so much repertoire yeah. fast. Mm. And what I found was that the marking became a way of digesting, of yeah. putting it in my system, that maybe those markings didn't mean so much to me after I'd done them, but they meant a lot to me for the process of doing them, mm. how I was then assimilating the material. And from there over, I don't know, about 20 years, 15, 20 years, I kept refining the way I mark and I kept changing things and I kept getting closer and closer to, to something that just made sense to me. Mm. And I've always, uh, from, the, from the time I worked with uh, Boston and Oberlin, done a kind of phrase architectural analysis uh, as a kind of entryway into any score I do. And I've never stopped doing that, but I found ways of marking it that are increasingly sophisticated, but also personal. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone necessarily. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but for me, even finding ways of marking the meters, I've adjusted over time. What, what's the most clear, concise, effective way of marking things became an obsession almost. Right. Now I have a very particular way of marking that hasn't changed much in maybe five, 10 years. And, uh, and, it, and it serves me very well. And what I find is that I, I feel like what I've, of what's evolved for me is valuable because I can apply it to anything and it helps me. Mm. So it's not just something that helps me with Haydn. It's going to help me with Osvaldo Goliath too. So yeah, yeah. that that means to me something about what I'm doing is inherently valuable for my process. And that's how I look at it. And with my students at Aspen, I encourage them, you figure out what works for you. If, mm -hmm. if it works for you not to mark, don't mark. If it works, you, but the one thing I recommend is if you're going to mark, don't be shy. 
<laughs> you know, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, you know, I, I offer advice to my students about, you know, this is the system I use and I've used it now for 10 years. And I've found, as you said, it's transferable from Baroque to, you know, the ink still wet on the page. Um, but please use your own. Please don't don't do anything if you feel that you can do it another way. You know, I'm just offering you what I do, but yeah. I'm, not, I'm not making it a rule or a mantra yeah, or a absolutely. law. Absolutely. You know? yeah. um, Isn't that it, though? Yeah, because absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> everybody has to do the work that we do with our particular markings one way or the other. Yeah, but but the the point is you've got to do the work, you know. You've got to do the work, yeah. and and like you, I I agree that you know, I often when I when I turn a page, I know what's written on the other page because I remember writing it in, which means yeah. that I've learnt the piece. You know, that, yeah. that that works for me. It's yeah, it's well. Uh, and now that I'm blind, all I can see is my markings anyway. So I really, <laughs> <laughs> and I um, and I I use it very consistently. And you asked me about the piano, and I still use the piano a great great deal. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I can't brag to myself that I'm so good as to hear off the page every time accurately. Um, I can certain pieces, um, certain uh, languages, uh, yeah. certain tonal languages, but boy, you know, I get a new score of, from somebody who's exploring harmonies that are unique to them. I confess I need the piano. I'm not going to get there no matter how long I stare at that page without the help. I need the crutch. Mm. And frankly, I love the crutch. And I, even now, it, what, what I find valuable for me because of my relationship to the keyboard and because I'm so accustomed to playing scores at the piano, if I'm coming back to a piece I've done a hundred times, one of the best ways I know to re-engage it is to play it for myself. Mm -hmm. So I'll go back to the piano to play Beethoven 7 whenever I'm about to conduct Beethoven 7 because I end up looking at everything with a new eye because mm. uh, I'm, I'm trying to play everything and I'll make different choices about how I reduce things and I'll you know, keep working on my own transcription, so to say. Mm. And, and that, I don't know, refreshes my relationship to the score. And so I even use the piano in that way I tend to use recordings as well in the way that we were all taught not to. Ah, uh, yes. Because, yeah. <laughs> because I find them incredibly useful. Yeah. And I remember somebody asked Esabeka about uh, Solomon about using uh, recordings. And he said, well, it's another resource. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Thought, now that's terrific. Yeah. Pavo Yevi has said the same thing on a film for the Berlin, Berlin Philharmonic. He said, you'd be an absolute lunatic not to listen to great recordings of the past or one that came out last week. It, it, they're all resources, especially yeah. now. You know, I mean, I grew up, if I wanted to listen to a piece, I had to go to my local library, take out the LP, get yep. the sport. Now you can get it on your phone. I mean, it's. That's it's right. Crazy. Yeah. Well, the, the only thing that's important to be said about that is, you know, you, you don't listen to them to copy it, but you're listening to, you know, to be informed by it. Or somebody might do something, you go, well, why have they done that interpretation? Exactly. There? And then it gets you thinking about it. And that, exactly. You'd be stupid and not to think about it. Exactly. And I, I guess I understand the injunction from my training. Yeah. Yeah. Because you should learn to play score at the piano. You should learn to solfege. You should do your best to hear from your visual information from the score transferring to your inner ear great mm. then you should listen to a recording and see how <laughs> they did it yeah absolutely <laughs> but i often find that my interpretive choices are informed 
by reacting. Mm. Oh, I would never do that. Yeah, that's yeah. horrible. I'm not going to do that. Mm. <laughs> or, or the opposite. Oh, I never would have thought of that. Isn't yeah. that brilliant and insightful? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I find them to be incredibly valuable. And I tend to listen to things. Uh, I tend not to listen to recordings much on things that I've done a lot at this point. I guess just because I don't feel the need in any particular way, except on occasion. Yeah. But if I'm learning something new, I tend to want to go through 10 recordings at some point and see how other people have, have looked at the same material as, as I have. I think the interesting, the, the interesting comment that Simon Rattle made on the same film is about listening to recordings. He said, I do exactly the same, but I don't listen to it too early and I don't listen to it too late. Just There, that's it. Yeah, somewhere that's in the it. middle where you know, I've already looked at the score and I've already found the phrasing. I've already done some preliminary work, either the piano or whatever else, but I also don't want to be doing it in the week beforehand when you know, you're, exactly. you're really forming your final thoughts. How perfect is that? Yeah. yeah. Bob, it's 10 questions time, and I always start with the same two, which are, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of the piano. Mm -hmm. I'm a real piano lover. Yeah. And as I've started uh, composing again in earnest, because for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I did very little, yeah. and coming back to it in the last eight or so, uh, I'm in love with the sound of the piano all over again and been writing a lot for the piano yeah. because the resonance of the piano and the, I don't know, it's something you can bathe in. <laughs> I hate the sound of leaf blowers. And I'm a, <laughs> I would like to outlaw them yeah. and I would like to have a, um, a, a violent rampage against those using them. <laughs> well what you can't hear because i've got my window shut which means i'm absolutely sweating in my upstairs room oh, in my house oh. but somebody has got some garden machinery out next oh, to no. uh, it's not that's a leaf it. blower it's it's not autumn so it can't be a leaf blower but something well, that's what i keep on. thinking around here it's not autumn how many <laughs> these leaf blowers yeah i know but yeah i yeah i agree with you especially if it's one of those in the uk rare days when you can sit out in your garden and you think, oh, it's just nice and quiet. And then somebody thinks, yeah, I'm going out in my garden and I'm going to get the machinery out. Yeah, thanks. Um, indeed. That takes care of that day. Yeah, indeed. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I am a biblioholic. Ah. And um, my mother is an excellent seamstress and quilter. Mm. and even made me pillows that define biblioholism. Right. As, as someone who has an unquenchable longing to purchase, peruse, read, shelf, alphabetize, and so on, books. Yeah. yeah. And it is, uh, it is a passion of mine that I have had my whole life, and I, I, I not only love accumulating them and collecting them, and have a fascination with rare editions and old editions and so on. Mm. But I also love reading them. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm going to blank on the author, but there was a, a essayist basically who's written uh, beautifully on libraries and books. And one of the things he said was uh, a great library is a form of telepathy. Mm. 
And I do feel sometimes if I'm uh, in my library at my desk and I, I just left my previous house. And in that house, I had a, a two bedroom setup that was separated by a bathroom. So it was what, what they would call a Jack and Jill setup for yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. Each have their own bedroom and share a bathroom. Well, I had both bedrooms full of books. And one of them was really my desk and my electric piano, my study. Yeah. And then the other one was just books and multiple shelves within the middle of the room too. So you really feel like you're in the stacks. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm allowed to spend a day at that desk. You can spend it anywhere you like. It sounds great to oh, me. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And for me, one book leads to another. And then I want to cross-reference this. And then I want to check that footnote out in that source. And then I, so I start uh, pulling things off. Eventually I have stacks of things around me and I'm in heaven. Mm. And then I get to refile them, which is equally exciting. <laughs> Keeping things, you know, alphabetized and in order is also part of the joy of a, of a life. It may not look ordered to others, but I know where every book is. Yeah, yeah. I'm like that with the, the as you know, most of us on Zoom are sitting in some location or other. I'm in my study and behind me are my scores, as um, Robert can see. And I'm like that with, uh, the, I'm doing a rehearsal on Wednesday in London. And I know I before COVID, I would have walked past a secondhand bookshop and downstairs in the basement were scores. Uh, and I would always go in there. And the amount of times I've looked at my watch and thought, oh God, I've got a rehearsal in three minutes. I better get out of here. And, and I'm going to pay for another eight scores, which I may or may not have needed. But yeah, the time I could spend in a, in a shop like that and then get back here and make sure that they go back on the shelf in exactly the right place. I have to admit, when we started, my eyes immediately gravitated to your shelves and I wanted to go through what's on them. <laughs> uh, well, off the, well, maybe this is this will stay on the on the podcast or not. But the biggest one that I'm hiding, uh, see if I can move in the right direction. If I did that, can you see the big uh, red and blue? You probably yes. know what that is. Is that Bach? <laughs> no, it's every note Richard Strauss ever wrote. Oh, those are the Strauss scores. Yeah, Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's the 30 volumes. I was gifted them by a friend um, from an, uh, a dis recently deceased uncle they'd had who was a score collector. And this oh, friend said to me, I've got these I've got these scores of Strauss. And I said, well, how many have you got? She said, I've got 30 volumes. Do you want them? I've got nowhere to keep them. I was like, oh, do I want them? Yeah, well. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the difficult day came when I ended up for the first time using one. Uh, and thinking, well, do I write in these or not? And I actually messaged her, her on Facebook and she said, he would be so pleased if you wrote on it. But that That's first funny. red marking of four and a bar over the top was, I'm defiling these things, but yeah, I'm going to try and defile more of them as we go along. Exactly. Question number four, you can have more than one, as many as you like. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? One of the people I think of who, of course, I can only admire in my imagination, is Nickish. Yes. Because in a sense, he's the father of us all, having it's, had no career as anything else. Yeah. There's one, isn't there one um, clip with no music uh, yes. that you can see of him conducting? Yeah. Um, there's no soundtrack to it. It's just a silent clip of him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. But uh, the fact that his musical reputation was built with his baton and not as a composer or violinist or pianist or anything yeah. else, I think is, I don't know. I somehow he, he feels like the father of conducting in the modern mm. sense. Mm. And um, 
although any conductor should be fluent in any of um, any number of other musical disciplines, nevertheless, he's mm. a career conductor. Um, it was drummed into me to uh, admire Toscanini, so I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the other one that leaps to my mind because of his reputation as a humanist is Metropolis. Mm. Not a name I'm sure who's come up on here before. I know he was a big influence on Leonard Bernstein yes. at the very start of his career. Died tragically young, didn't he? Wasn't he actually conducting when he died, I think? I um, don't know that. That's very possible. I, th I think he I, I, may be true. Um, I might need to fact check myself before I put it out on the podcast. But uh, yeah, uh, a, a real lion of a conductor who was taken very early, wasn't he? Um, well, let's see what your choices are for question five, because uh, I love your choices for question four. So question five is who would be a favorite current conductor or conductors? Well, uh, you're reminding me of a scene in the Golden Girls uh, television show where <laughs> Rose is dating a professor. So she's feeling, and Rose is the dim-witted one. And so mm -hmm. she's feeling particularly intimidated and she's at a party and, and she, um, she overhears someone saying, well, if you can invite any two people living or dead to dinner, who would they be? And now she's trying to repeat this question in another setting to make conversation. And it comes out, if you could invite any two people living or dead to dinner, what would you serve? <laughs> <laughs> in a way is quite brilliant. Yes. <laughs> so I guess it depends what's being served. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, but pe people have, have definitely uh, given their answers led on the choice of repertoire. Absolutely oh, in the past. Yeah, okay, yeah. so I'm not alone in this. No, no, uh, not in the slightest. No, no. Okay, so <laughs> that's good to know. Uh, but uh, without saying what repertoire, uh, for me, uh, I could say uh, Esapekka Salonen is someone I, I deeply admire, and uh, so is Seiji Ozawa, obviously, mm -hmm. having worked with him. And uh, and Michael Tilson Thomas is uh, another American to whom I look at, you know, he's enough older than me that uh, I look to him as a model of uh, the beautiful things he's done in Miami and San Francisco. And mm. so um, I'll name those three. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Well, I'll, I can give two answers, right? Yes, you can, yes. Okay, so the hardest in terms of carving, you mm -hmm. know, stupid human tricks, yeah. would have to be Gruppen of Stockhausen. Okay. Yeah. Because it just is a real bear yeah. to, to be on top of, of the mechanics of the, of the score and to be able to do it with one's colleagues. And, and the other one I would mention is the ring. Uh, because when I did the ring, that was my first Wagner conducting other than orchestral excerpts in my life. Wow. I was never uh, a big Wagnerite, mm. quite the contrary. Uh, you know, Ali and I would make fun of Wagner on a regular basis. <laughs> and one, one time I was visiting him and I saw, and it was, it was opportune because I had been asked if I would do the ring in Seattle and I hadn't given an answer. I didn't know how I felt about this. Mm. And I arrive at his place and there's Wagner stacked everywhere. 
not just the scores and the CDs, but the pros. You know, this is making me a little nervous. <laughs> I said, what's going on here? And he said, oh, I'm trying to write longer music. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so I told him I have this chance to do the ring. Yeah. And he said, well, tell you what, I'll put act one of Siegfried on. And if you can get through that, you'll be fine. Mm. So he did. He put I had the headphones on. He went off doing whatever. Midway through scene two, I start screaming, turn it off, make it stop. <laughs> was, was not, um, it wasn't my cup of tea by any means. And I read too much Nietzsche to really, you know, fall yeah. uh, into the cult. But I spent about nine months, uh, Spate Jenkins, who's a fantastic impresario. I mean, he, he did just amazing things at the Seattle Opera throughout his career. But he had enough faith in me that he thought I could do this. And he knew that yeah. he knew he was asking me to do something way out of my sphere of interest, let alone uh, capability. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally untested waters for me. And in the course of those nine months, I, I did start to get glimmers of why everyone's so Wagner obsessed. Yeah. And then I, uh, I really carved out my schedule. So he had asked me about five years in advance. So for two years, I started studying very carefully on my own. And then the two years prior to doing The Ring, I stopped guest conducting essentially. I did maybe three gigs a year in addition to taking care of Atlanta. And the rest of the time I'm studying the ring, studying the ring, studying the ring. And what a fantastic opportunity that was. I mean, yeah. I would say to anyone who's asked to conduct the ring, say yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because who gets to do it, number one? Well, exactly, How yeah. rare the opportunities are. And for an idiot like me, who had to get to be so old to learn, <laughs> uh, it, it, what an education, what a genius this man is, what a, and how badly I misunderstood him mm. uh, and as a composer. I, I believed what I was taught in school, you know, and it's not true. He wasn't just a prophet. He was also an encyclopedist. Yeah. He was a Janus-faced giant who, who encapsulates the past and, and propels it into the, it's unbelievable. Or you think if you're not a Wagnerian, you think, well, can't they make cuts? And then if you study Wagner, you realize you cut one note and you're doing as much damage as you'd be doing to a Mozart symphony. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's this impeccably crafted, impeccably, and uh, according to its own criterion. And you mm. have to respect that. Uh, oh, well, I do. Yeah. Uh, and the, the searing beauty of, of that music is one thing, but the gigantic intellect behind it is quite another. And we can make fun of his librettos as much as we want, but they are perfectly crafted for the stage. And we all know that the best play doesn't necessarily make the best libretto. And often what is not necessarily a very good play as a libretto is great for making an opera. And he understood that somehow. He understood everything in ways that are just unimaginable, except how to behave. Yeah. And I, at some point I had to, I had to realize I don't have to approve of him humanly. I don't think I'd want to have lunch with Beethoven. Mm. Uh, you know, but I had to overcome that, that bias, that prejudice of mine to engage him deeply. And what a gift. What a gigantic gift he, he is mm. to the world of music. And it's just unbelievable to me how badly I misunderstood him all my life. 
<laughs> the things I hated most in his operas became my favorite things, you know, the norms. Why do we have to hear this story again? Haven't we all been here? And it's night four, can we get on with it? Yeah. No, that's not it at all. He's not retelling the story. He's turning that, that kaleidoscope of understanding. It's, it's a Nietzschean process of perspectivism. It's giving us this whole other way of looking at the same material and highlighting it and expanding it and refracting it. And oh my, I, or Wotan's monologue in the middle of Valkyrie. Mm. endless monologue that many people are not fond of that became my for me that's like the heart of the ring because i started perceiving the ring for myself i became one of the people who see it through the prism of of votan's perspective mm. even though his participation in the last opera isn't you can say that well how can it be about votan but for me it still is mm. the unfolding of the entire event is from and psychologically, I think that that's a, a viable way to, to view it as well. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm babbling on and on and on because I was just, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. So uh, what's amazing is that, you know, the question six was, what's the hardest work you've ever conducted? And it's ended up with you basically saying it was one of the greatest things you've ever did. But, you know, that's, <laughs> that, but that's partly what we do, isn't it? You know, sometimes you open a score and go, what on earth am I going to do with this? You know, I've conducted scores that it looks like a row of data or a, a endless telephone numbers. Every bar is a different time signature or whatever. Right, right. Oh, this is so hard. But by the end of it, you're convinced you've, you know, you're, you've 180 degree shift. Um, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thing about that question is that I rarely get the same answer. Um, and I always get different reasons as to why people have found it hard. But what a great story. Absolutely wonderful. I think what was hard for me about it was having to immerse myself in it yeah. Um, after a lifetime of neglect in just yes. a few years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Absolutely. that much music, a few years isn't very long. No, 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 no. Um, number seven, um, which the, the question is, before I read it out for you, when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? You're not allowed to say passport, baton, cell phone, score, or suitcase, because all of those answers are banned. But I suspect I know what your answer is going to be anyway, because you gave, you gave it about books anyway. But it might not be. You might be need a yoga mat or something. But I'll read the question out for you. <laughs> I'll read the question I out. Could, I might could use a yoga mat, but <laughs> I don't take one. No, no. <laughs> uh, I'll, read the, I'll cut in so I can read it out. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, you, you told me that you could predict my answer, but it's true. I have to have my reading material with yeah. <laughs> me. And a Kindle won't do. No. I, I just, I've not been able to adjust. I just can't do it. Mm. And uh, so I always take something, uh, I take a few things. I try and travel as light as I can manage to force myself regarding the books. But I need something I know and love and is something I can reread with with pleasure. And I need something new that's fascinating me. And then I need something else that I'll read if I don't want to read those two things. And then I need another thing, you know, get, so eventually the luggage is getting heavier and then I start putting things back and trying to pick, but I need my reading material on the road. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The one thing I would change about being a conductor that is tough. 
Would you like some? Would you like some previous previous answers? Some previous. No, no, I want to wrestle right. with it a little. All right, bit. okay, fine. That's wrestle, tough. wrestle away. That's yeah. a tough question. I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do we have to have that orchestra playing? Do you remember that? <laughs> do you remember Ormandy's famous line? Why do you insist on playing while I'm trying to conduct? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think, I, I, I don't know if this is an answer, but it's what comes to mind. I would change everyone's mind that the conductor is not a musician. That's a brilliant answer. Because I know so often people talk about the conductor and the musicians. Mm. And I don't think of myself as separate from the orchestra. I don't yeah. think of myself as separate from the musicians. And I know I'm not making any sound, but I'm still in the mix. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I don't feel like the product is mine alone. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't approach conducting as the orchestra needs to do what I want. I approach it as I'm the first violinist of a string quartet and mm -hmm. I need to take my leadership role responsibly, but I also need to invite the creativity of the people who are playing mm -hmm. and uh, actually making this sound. But I think that makes us musicians. Absolutely. And so yeah. often we are, and I don't mind the jokes. Mm. That's okay with me. And keep the jokes, you know, yeah. the difference between a bull and a conductor and so on. Yes. That's yeah. all good. But, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the, the one about the snake. Well, you know, he has no ears and he's slimy. He must be a conductor. All of that stuff is fair game. Yeah. But, uh, but really, we're musicians. And um, I, I, it saddens me that, that it's so difficult to be regarded as such I mean, mm. even by ourselves you mm. know mm. we conductors i think sometimes get trapped in well i have to create this music for everyone well yeah you have to do your job I yeah. mean, you have to yeah. you have to be there you have to know the score intimately you have to have a clue you have to lead us in a certain direction but you'd better incorporate the creativity of your colleagues along the way and i, I think we're musicians first what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Monk. But I can't find a cult that I'm willing to join. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that answer's staying Fire in. Fire or otherwise. <laughs> uh, that answer's staying in. <laughs> if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I, I'd like, to, uh, but there's some music involved or just the meal and drink? No, just the meal and drink. If you want music involved. Oh, I thought it was the last thing you listened to as well. No, 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 no. Oh, just eating and drinking? Yeah, just eating and drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Spaghetti and meatballs and wine. Red, I'm assuming? Red. But right. the meatballs and spaghetti have to be of my making. Oh, cool. Because uh, I have, the, this is the joke. I have my great-grandmother's recipe but it's from my mother's side and she was Finnish. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> oh, it sounds, it sounds like a wonderful meal. And, you know, uh, having laughed and chuckled with you for the last hour or so, um, I, I hope I would be invited to share your spaghetti and meatballs. You are more than welcome. <laughs> you don't even have to bring the wine. <laughs> I would, I would. But thank you, Robert. It's been an absolute pleasure. This really was a pleasure. Thank you very, very, very much. 
A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Dutch conductor who, after entering the German Kapellmeister system, became music director in two German opera houses over a 13-year period. He guest conducts all over the world, has a teaching position at the Amsterdam Conservatoire, and, since recording the interview, he has been appointed Chief Conductor-Designate of the Belgian National Orchestra, starting in 2022. But until then, bye-bye! <laughs>